0: Quick announcement before we look at the scripture together. just want to acknowledge tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day, uh, a time that we want to celebrate in our country as things move forward, thanks to the work of Martin Luther King Jr. A um, couple of things on him, particularly because we're in this series on church leadership. We would acknowledge that there are some things he believed that we would say were wrong, like we don't agree with every single thing that Martin Luther King Jr. believed. Um, But it's really helpful, I think, to look at the arguments he actually made because his arguments for civil rights, his arguments for the image of God being put in every human being are beautiful biblical arguments. The civil rights movement as he led it was built on Christian belief. And to the extent that Martin Luther King Jr. didn't agree with all of our uh, beliefs and theology, some of that could be laid uh, blame at the feet of the fact that um, the institutions at the time that were the most conservative Bible teaching seminaries and colleges wouldn't allow a black man to come there and study. Um, so there's this kind of weird thing where sometimes conservative people will critique false beliefs among uh, Martin Luther King and some of his followers. At the same time, our institutions wouldn't even allow him to study at, at those schools um, so we have to have an attitude of repentance about this period in our history. Um, I want to encourage you to do some research on your own. If you got the day off, a lot of people have the day off tomorrow. Read letter from the Birmingham jail. Uh, read the biblical arguments he makes here. Like I said, foundational to his belief in civil rights was the idea of what's sometimes called personalism, but that is that every human being is made in the image of God. Every human being deserves dignity. And we, as believers in Christ, can affirm that. Uh, and should be excited about those arguments he's making. I also want to encourage you to read this other book uh, for just historical background on the civil rights movement. It's called *Let Justice Roll Down* uh, by John Perkins. This is an evangelical pastor who was growing up in Mississippi when things were really bad in the 50s. He fled to get away because there was so much oppression. He moved to California. There in California, he met Jesus and felt a call to go back to the difficulties in Mississippi and. Plant a church and preach the gospel. So this is a beautiful picture of someone who's a little more from our evangelical tribe, uh, but was still at the middle of the civil rights movement. And it's a fantastic book as well, biographical story, historical study story. I'm going to leave these up here so you can look at them, take a picture, and maybe order some for yourself. Uh, this is like book day. I've got a bunch of books up here too, so I'll leave those. You can check those out afterwards. So now we're going to spend some time looking at the scriptures together. We're studying a series called "Church Is Not What You Think." Church. Is not what you think. And what we're understanding from the book of Titus is that we all have preconceived notions about church. Uh, We've sometimes been hurt by bad churches, or sometimes we've just kind of been taught weird things about church that aren't necessarily true. We want to look at the scriptures and see what God calls us to be and what God says the church should be. Uh, Titus is one of these three letters in the New Testament that are often called pastoral epistles. And so what that means is these are letters written to. Pastors or shepherds saying, This is how the church should be led. Um, And so, all of us as God's people want to be the church that God calls us to be. You can kind of see from the artwork, we've got this focus on a building and architectural drawings. The idea is that the church is not the building, the church is the people. We are the church, and and what are we going to do? Are we going to be the church that God calls us to be? Or are we going to just let things get worse and worse in our society? So this week, as we look at Titus, we're calling it Reject False Gospels. We're going to be in Titus chapter 1, finishing up chapter 1 and verses 10 through 16. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some Bibles under the chairs. You can grab one of those and turn to page 999. Page 999. It's Titus 1, verses 10 through 16 that we're going to look at. I want to introduce this real quickly before we read the text with an image. And I want to kind of apologize because I'm going to give you a gross, kind of disgusting image, okay? So just so we're clear, I'm doing it on purpose, not just to gross you out, but because the subject of this section of Scripture is there are certain things that are not healthy, that are toxic, and they're like sewage that we need to keep out of the church, and we need to let the good come in, and we need to keep the bad out. And so with that kind of image, with that metaphor, we all have functions like that in our household. Most of you, I I know, I've been to a lot of your houses, have indoor plumbing, right? Raise your hand if you have indoor plumbing. So a lot of you, at least half of our church now, has (laughs) indoor plumbing. And there are two basic functions of indoor plumbing, right? One function is to bring clean water in. Another function is to get filth out out of your house, right? We have one particular item in most of our houses called the toilet, right? And the toilet's job is to get the gross stuff out. I know, I see you rolling your eyes. I'm sorry, but hang with me. This is important. Its job is to get stuff out. Sometimes a toilet malfunctions, okay? It backs up, and you've got a choice when a toilet starts to overflow, right? It's like this moment of truth. You can either run the other direction or you can stay and fight, right? Right? you can run the other direction or you can stay and fight. We've got a hard text this morning that's saying you got to fight the filth of false gospels that come in and corrupt our lives. You got to fight it. Just like with the toilet, right? There's that moment where you're like, I could reach behind it and turn off the water and slow this down, but I don't know if I want to get that close, right? Like you don't know if you want to get that involved and be that committed? And that's the same kind of question we have to ask ourselves as a church. Are we willing to say no to false teaching and to encourage sound teaching? Are we willing to do the basic plumbing, the doctrinal plumbing of saying, we want to pump in fresh water of the healthy gospel of Jesus Christ, the Jesus-centered reality that he is our only hope, but then we've also got to push back the filth, the waste, the wrong things. We got to reject the false gospels. There are a lot of other messages of good news that are not really good news because they're flesh-centered and man-centered and self-salvation systems. And we've gotta decide, what, do, what are we gonna do when those things begin to enter into our homes and into our church? One more thing before I read the text. This is very leader-centered, right? And so myself as a leader, the elders, the pastors of our church, we have a organizational responsibility to encourage good teachers and to reject bad teachers in our church organization, right? But all of us have a responsibility as believers in Christ Right? We all have on and off switches of what kind of voices we're going to listen to, what kinds of things we're going to say to ourselves, how well are you going to preach the gospel to your own heart, what voices are you going to listen to, what kind of media you're going to listen to. So, this applies to everyone. And the more that all of us are devoted to the truth, the more that all of us are centering our lives on Jesus, the healthier we will all be, right? So, we're all in this together. So, All that to say, that's my really long way of saying you don't get to turn your brain off if you're not a church leader, okay? This is for all of us. So let's read the text. I'm gonna start in verse nine uh, because it kind of gets the positive negative thing and then we're gonna move into the negative verses that we have today. Verse nine says, he, the leader, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction. Where's encourage? To give instruction or encourage in sound doctrine, healthy teaching, in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it, right? So he just laid out, that's the twofold job. I just talked about plumbing. You want to pump in good water and you want to get rid of filth. That's the, the leader's role in the church as well. In all of our roles as members of the body of Christ, we want to bring in the good and reject the bad, okay? That's how we're going to be healthy. Verse 10, he lays this out about the unhealthy teachers. He says, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. this is a hard passage. just want to admit that. Um, we're a culture. We're a people that want to kind of let everybody think what they want to think, right? We want to kind of honor all ideas as equal. But here, Paul's saying, no, there, there's some ideas that are bad ideas. There's some teaching that hurts people. Um, I want to acknowledge that's hard for us as a culture. I also want to acknowledge that's hard for me personally. My temperament is a let's just love everybody kind of temperament, right? Like that's, that's kind of who I am. That's who I'm wired to be. Um, So I want to acknowledge that. And we're going to pray that God would help us. It's also hot in here. Is it hot in here? Yeah. Maybe we could make the air cooler too, if if any of you have access to the magic buttons. Um, But I'm going to pray that God would help us to hear what he has to say. Just acknowledge the difficulty we have, but also to hear what he wants us to hear this morning. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. And we pray that you would speak to us. We believe uh, that you speak to us through your word, that your Holy Spirit can can meet us in the reading and hearing of your word, and you can help us to listen to your voice, to follow you. Uh, So we ask that you'd meet us this morning. We we admit, Lord, that some of us are committed and we're hungry. Others of us, Lord, are are doubtful, we're curious, but we have real questions. God, I pray for all of us that you'd meet us and help us to see more of you this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the big idea is to reject false gospels, right? There's kind of a leadership role in that and there's a everyday everybody role in that as well. And so as we think this through, there are three things that we want to recognize about the false gospels. Number 1 is that false gospels are religious. It's kind of a surprising line in the text that we'll look at in more detail where he says, "You especially got to watch out for the religious people. They're the worst." Okay? So false gospels can be Religious, they sneak up on us. We're expecting them to be like anti religion and real clearly going in the other direction, but sometimes they sneak up on us. They're religious. The second thing is we need to understand that false gospels are cancerous, meaning they will kill you, spiritually dangerous. And again, we live in a world where we're like, every idea is equal, it doesn't matter, your truth, my truth, right? Like that's kind of the air we breathe. And so that's hard for us to wrap our brains around that some ideas are bad ideas that are spiritually dangerous to our souls. So we gotta recognize they're cancerous and we wanna cut those out of our lives. And then finally, what we're gonna see is that false gospels are artificial. They're external, artifice, outside, right? They fix what's on the outside of us. They don't really fix our heart. So false gospels, we can get really excited because they just seem to cut to the main issue. Like I got this problem and it talks about this problem and it's gonna deal with my problem but it might not get down to the root and to the heart of the issue. It's artificial. So number one, false gospels are religious. And he has so much negative stuff here about being insubordinate and empty talkers and all this negativity that we can miss this one little line where he says in verse 10, especially the circumcision party. Especially the circumcision party. Translation, especially the very devoted Jewish Bible readers, They're the worst. So let's back up and read verse 10. Verse 10 says, there are many who are insubordinate, right? They're unruly and rebellious. Many who are empty talkers. They're saying junk that's empty. It's vacuous. It has no value. He says, many who are deceivers, they're lying. It's not going to heal you. It's not going to make you whole. It's not going to restore you to God. And then he says, especially worse than any are the circumcision party. Paul, the Apostle Paul, has some of the hardest language for those who would substitute religion for Jesus. And this can be really confusing for us because we're religious people, right? Even the least religious of you in this room, you're kind of religious because you just showed up today, right? <laughs> I mean, even you, if you've never been to church before in your whole life, you're like here in a religious place. And so we've got we've to watch out for this. We're doing corporate religion right now. And religion is something that often has a negative connotation in the scriptures. Jesus would would often fight with the Bible teachers and the Bible leaders of his day. They were called Pharisees. They were the professors and teachers, and he would go head to head with them again and again. There's a picture I have here of a wolf in sheep's clothing to remind us of this kind of deception idea, right? That... Often false teaching is dressed up, it's clothed in respectability. It's it's dressed up in a way to look religious and to look good, and so that's part of what makes it deceiving. And Jesus said this. This cartoon was not my idea. This comes from Matthew chapter 7. Jesus says, beware, watch out for false teachers because they are wolves in sheep's clothing. They're dressing up, but really they want to eat you. They want to devour you. So I just want to say from the onset that as we move through this text, I'm going to kind of start more negative. I'm going to start with watch out, be careful, don't just trust everybody. But we want to kind of move towards the positive, right? Because ultimately, the way that we watch out is by feeding ourselves on what is good and pure and right. Have you ever heard this illustration before about um, detecting false money? What's it called? Counterfeit money. Um, I don't know if you've heard this before. Preachers have heard it a million times. It floats around all the time, but maybe you've not heard it. Maybe it's fresh and new for you. And this is the idea that when you're trying to detect counterfeit money, the best way to do that is study the real money. Have you ever heard that before? Okay, you have all heard it before. Sorry, old illustration, okay. But it's still true. I actually had a guy that used to work CID. He was like, oh yeah, that's absolutely right. Because there's a million variations of the wrong thing, right? There's a million ways that teaching can be false and confusing. So orient yourself towards the truth. So I, I just want to say that that's, That's the trajectory of where we're going, but we got to stop with, watch out, there's fakes out there, right? There are fake gospels. There are false prophets, as Jesus said, and he says, you can judge them by their fruits. You can tell really who they are by their fruit, so it's not like you're completely powerless. You can recognize, so just beware, the fakes are out there, and they're often dressed up in religion. So some of Paul's harshest language are for these people who substituted religion for Jesus, um, in Galatians 1.8, he says, if anybody brings an alternative gospel to you, right? Instead of saying Jesus is enough, what they're gonna say is, well, Jesus is great, but you also need religion. Jesus is great, but you also need to dress this way. Jesus is great, but you also need circumcision, which you can ask a friend to explain fully what that is, but it was an external mark of holiness. It was a symbolic mark of holiness that did not necessarily cut to the heart. And so symbols are fine, right? We can communicate symbolically. The Old Testament is full of these symbols. Circumcision was commanded in the Old Testament, along with this entire sacrificial system, certain food laws. There are all kinds of ways that these things were commanded to symbolically tell a story of God's character, that God is holy and good and righteous, and we are not. And we need a sacrifice. We need a savior. We need a hero. That's what all these stories were telling. And so then Hebrews 8 is real clear. When Jesus came, we don't need to keep telling those stories in the same symbolic way anymore. Jesus is enough. And so watch out for those that would substitute religion for Jesus. Paul says in Galatians 1.8, let them go to hell. Harsh words, like maybe the harshest words in the New Testament. Let them be accursed. Let them be damned. I've joked sometimes, as Christians, we want to not cuss too much, right? Like, it's a good habit to not cuss, to not have filthy language. Um, but if you notice, you can kind of draw this line of every time that Paul uses what we would kind of consider cussing, it's about this issue, right? So he says, false teachers, if they're bringing another gospel, let them de- be damned. He says, you know, when I consider all my Jewishness and how much better I was than anyone else, I now consider that sewage and filth compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus in another place, he calls the circumcision party dogs, right? That would, doesn't really translate for us because we keep dogs in our house, which a Jew would have been completely horrified by. But basically, in Jewish first century standards, he was cussing. He was calling them dogs, okay? Um, there are all kinds of places like this. There are others that are too vulgar to mention, okay? But he says, this is not okay to substitute religion for Jesus. And it's confusing for us because religion is the external manifestation often of our devotion to Jesus. And so we can go to like a church and say, hey, there's some religious people. Maybe they'll help me follow Jesus. And you walk into this community and they're taking you farther and farther away from Jesus. So how does this actually happen? Um, I want to kind of give you some ways that I've seen this happen over the years. People confuse Bible teaching for gospel preaching, right? Um, So again, Jesus fought with these guys, the Pharisees, all the time who would teach the Bible, but they'd never talked about God's mercy and his forgiveness. And so they were building the system of do this, do that, and if you do all these things, you can be religious and you can be doing the right things in such a way that, guess what? You don't think you need Jesus anymore because you're so good. And so we see this paradigm in the New Testament where uh, religion legalism, uh, devotion, actually ends up in the same place as license and rebellion, right? So in verse 10, he says they're insubordinate, they're rebellious, empty talkers, especially the religious guys, right? So we've got license, do whatever you want, follow your heart, seek pleasure. That's a kind of self-salvation through pleasure and through self, right? Running from God and trying to save yourself by just having fun. Religion, though, is the same thing, Following religious devotion can be a way of saving yourself with your own flesh. Saying, I can be good enough, I can attend enough times, I can give enough money, I can volunteer in the nursery enough times. All things we want you to do, right? But the moment I say that those are required for God to forgive you and love you, it becomes false teaching, right? We've always got to make sure we don't put the cart before the horse. Because Jesus obeyed for you, now you can obey. Because Jesus loves you, now follow him. Because Jesus saves you and he's your only hope, now live in a new way. So just because someone quotes the Bible doesn't mean it's true, right? It's gotta be Jesus-centered. There are a million ways to quote the Bible and twist the words and make it all about man. Make it all about how great the leader is or make it all about how great you are. So what you wanna hear from scripture, Isaiah 6 is a good pattern of this. More and more awe and amazement about how big and amazing God is. More and more reality about how far we fall short. And more clarity that Jesus is our only hope. God's grace is what gives us life. So that overall framework is what should be coming out of the scripture. But often what people do is they quote the Bible and they say things like a real common version. This is what we would call the prosperity gospel, right? Giving money is a good idea. New Testament says, giving, generosity, good thing in our life, Um, supporting teachers. I could say with a straight face, the Bible says you should pay your teachers. I benefit from that. I enjoy that. But what happens is we can make that the central message, right? Like we can make this one little law the gospel. So it's called the prosperity gospel. And the idea is that the more you give, then God has to give back to you and make you rich, And so you'll hear these promises in these churches that make the gospel. The message of the church every week is about your prosperity and giving financially to the church, enriching the pastor, giving to God so that then you will be made rich in return. Have you ever heard a message like that before? That's in contrast to the gospel that says Jesus gave up everything. He had ultimate prosperity and he sacrificed it for you and for me. And so that giving up of everything breaks our heart in such a way that we are now free and willing to give But we don't have to give to get Jesus' love. Jesus gives us his love. And because he gives us his love, then that frees us up to be generous, giving people. So the way I would say this is, just because someone's quoted the verse of a Bible doesn't mean they're speaking the truth. Are they helping you to see Jesus more? Are they helping you to see how good and how great and how glorious God is? That's one mark. Another mark, I was talking to a friend about this um, who's been in a lot of Pentecostal contexts, Uh, We believe, I just want to say up front, we believe that the spirit can do whatever the spirit wants, right? God can still work miracles. God can still heal people. God can still do these miraculous things. But there are these circles that kind of make that the norm, the everyday norm of life. And so you'll have these spiritual leaders who you think, well, they must be closer to Jesus because they have some manifestation of spiritual power, a prophetic word, spiritual insight. The danger with that though, is that there's Good spiritual power and bad spiritual power, right? Just because someone dis- displays some kind of insight, I mean, you don't know if maybe they just Googled your name, right? For one thing, but there could be real spiritual power there. It could be evil spiritual power. So I'd say what a better mark of spiritual power in someone's life to look for is the fruit of the spirit that Paul talks about in Galatians 5, right? So God can work miracles. Uh, people can be healed. All those things can happen, Right? But the big miracle is people loving others and having joy and peace and patience. Like that's the big miracle. That's the spiritual fruit we should look for in people's lives. The big miracles are people being more like Jesus and loving others. The big miracle are people turning from their sin and running to Christ. Spiritual transformation. Those are the miracles we should be looking for. Again, I'm not saying these other miracles don't happen. I'm just saying don't be sidelined by these displays of power and insight and then fall for religious false teaching. The final way that we can fall for a fake gospel that is religious is we can prefer traditions over Jesus, right? And I have to be careful about this because I'm one of those people that saw in my life how tradition hurts people and how it becomes a substitute for Jesus. And so if you've been hurt by any of these false gospels, you have the tendency to run real hard to the other extreme, right? So I just have to acknowledge, I have a tendency to wanna run away from tradition, which I don't think is really right. We wanna respect the traditions of our elders as much as we can, but we always want to weigh them and say, does this tradition carry the message of Jesus or does it carry me away from Jesus, right? So tradition isn't good or bad in and of itself. The question is, does it help me love Jesus more? That's really the question. And what can happen sometimes is people say, well, this is the tradition, And it's the tradition because it's the tradition and you just got to do it. And you're not accepted unless you do the tradition, right? And that's when it becomes a false gospel and something to reject. So again, I said, there there are ways that we should be aware of these false gospels, ways that we're brought away from Jesus. I would say what's really healthy is to to steep ourselves in the truth. A book that I've been wanting to uh, get a lot more of you to read is called Delighting in the Trinity. This book will help you understand more the truth about who Jesus is, how God has expressed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, how he exists uh, this way, and how that really gives hope to us. This is really a source of grace to us. The Trinity can kind of be this abstract idea, right? Like a lot of you have heard of these false gospels, like from the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons, and you might have this kind of basic knowledge. They're like, oh, they teach abstractly the wrong thing. Like they don't believe in the Trinity, and that's somehow wrong, but you really don't, like you really didn't know any more than that, Right? So I encourage you to study this. This is a great book that helps you to see how deep and beautiful and comforting the Trinity is, how the truth actually changes things in our life. It's a great book. Would recommend this to you. It's called Delighting in the Trinity by Michael, Ree- Michael Reeves. I'll leave this up here. Another book that helps you just grow in basic Christian theology is one called Christian Beliefs by Grudem. I wanna uh, recommend that to you as well. It's just a way to grow in understanding basic Christian truth. Going back to the analogy of counterfeit money, We want to understand the truth so that we can recognize things that divert from the truth. All right, the next thing we want to see is that fake gospels are cancerous. They are cancerous. And and what I mean by this is that they um, are deadly, that they hurt us. And so he's got some of the more negative language here in verses 11 through 13. Starting in verse 11, he says, they must be silenced. That word is literally muzzled. So this is some of the hard stuff he's saying, like you got to muzzle these people that are spewing this bad stuff. They got to be muzzled. He says, uh, they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So upsetting families, that can also be translated like overturning house churches. That word for family is kind of like household. So we're not sure exactly if that should be like an individual family or a house church meeting. Um, but it's destroying people's lives is what he's saying. And he says they're teaching it for shameful gains. That goes back to the prosperity gospel. I think that's one of the most common forms of false teaching that's religious in our day and age is this prosperity gospel where these false teachers are all about enriching themselves. Like that's really their main priority. So he goes on to verse 12 and he says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, This testimony is true. And I have to clarify a couple of things here. He's not talking uh, about what we would call racism here. He's not saying everybody that is genetically Cretan, I've analyzed their DNA and they have a propensity to lie, right? Like that's not what he's saying. He's talking about this island culture. This was a pirate island. And they were generally a culture from different racial backgrounds all over the Mediterranean world, but they all were united by living in the same place and being devoted by general culture of lying and thieving and stealing. That's what their culture was known for. That's, that's what he's saying, right? There are cultures that have cultural values and culture is influenced by race, but culture and race are not exactly the same thing. So we wanna differentiate that. The, the Bible does not support racism, but it does support saying, hey, you know, those people over there seem to have a problem in this particular area. They seem to love and promote lying. And that's what he's talking about here. The other thing that's really interesting is he's kind of making a joke right? Um, any of you ever watched the 60 Star Trek show? Have you seen that before? Um, Captain Kirk uses this logical puzzle. It's called the liar's paradox. He uses it to defeat and blow up an android. Y'all seen that episode? Um, so what Captain Kirk is, says, uh, he says something along the lines of everything I say is a lie and I'm lying right now. Figure that out. That'll like blow your brain, right? It completely destroyed an android. So be careful. Android started smoking and like smoke started coming out of his ears and stuff, and he just he died. Um, so here's the thing: Paul says, Epimenides, this Cretan prophet, said this thing. He prophesied that all Cretans are liars, and then he says the Cretan prophet spoke the truth when he said Cretans were liars. All Cretans are liars. See how that's a logical problem? Like if all Cretans are liars, and he's a Cretan, and he's saying they're liars, but he's saying the truth, how, that's not possible, right? What do you do with that? So it's kind of a joke. It's kind of a word puzzle. Um, He's joking. It's kind of tongue in cheek. But still, his main point is, you know, ha, ha, ha. But yeah, there's a lying problem in Crete. There's a lying problem here. He goes on in verse uh, 13 to say, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. So they're liars. They're evil beasts. They're lazy gluttons. This is true. So rebuke them sharply. The word sharply Literally means cut it out. So refute them, rebuke them in such a way that you cut this untruth out of your midst, your body, right? I have a picture here to illustrate this, cutting out. This is a surgeon drawing on you. Any of you had surgery and like the, the surgeon wrote on your leg, you know, like right leg, left leg, <laughs> you know, it's kind of weird. But you're happy that they do it because you're like, well, I guess I'm glad they didn't remove the wrong organ or cut off the wrong leg or, you know, like you want them to cut, as little as possible, right? That's a general principle of surgery. When a surgeon is operating on you, you want them to take out the bad stuff, but leave the rest of your body in place, right? And so I think that's a helpful analogy for us here. We don't wanna become heresy hunters. We don't wanna say like, okay, these false gospels, these fake gospels are cancerous, they're dangerous. So we're just gonna like go guns blazing, heresy hunting, blowing up everything that we're suspicious of, right? Like just obliterating things, cutting everything out. No, we want to we want to be pointed. We want to be focused. We want to reject the bad and accept the good. And it's interesting here he says rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. This is unique in the New Testament. Every other place that false teachers are talked about in the New Testament, it's like rebuke them, forget them, write them off. Really negative. There's not a lot of grace and forgiveness for false teachers in the New Testament. Very harsh language. Here, he says, that they may be sound in the faith. He's coming back to that healthy word again, that they can be healthy, that there could be renewed life here, cut out the cancer so that they can grow in Christ. So he's actually holding out hope here that if we do this hard thing, that in our culture, we don't wanna do, where we actually say, no, that's wrong, and it's gonna kill you where we actually say that and we silence the untruth and we promote what is good and true and Jesus-centered, there's going to be life. There's going to be health. So as much as my personality, as much as our culture doesn't want to go there, he's saying this is actually the way to life when we focus on Jesus and focus on the truth and focus on scripture. So how, how can we do this? How can we be more careful about this? We, just so you know, as leaders, we have systems and processes in place, right? So we don't just say, oh, anybody wanna teach? Sure, come teach. You know, like we, didn't, we have like things that we put in place to guard and protect the, the teaching ministries of our church to make sure we're promoting good teaching, right? But how about in your everyday life? Where, where does the teaching happen in the day in, day out of our everyday life? Well, I think in a large part, that battle takes place with the media that we consume. So here's one of two extremes that Christians go with media, Right? One extreme is we're laid back and we don't think about it at all, right? That's one extreme. You just are ingesting garbage. You're eating filth by listening to music and watching movies that you shouldn't be paying attention to and ingesting. The other extreme is you burn everything, right? (laughs) That extreme, I actually went through a little phase like that where I, I, you know, threw away all my heavy metal tapes in the 80s and stuff. Um, Came back to an appreciation though for Babylonian culture later on in my life. And I would want to uh, encourage you to live in that messy middle. One side says don't care. One side says burn everything. I think the messy middle is have a conversation with your Babylonian friends and neighbors. I use the word Babylon because in the scriptures, the Israelites were exiled in Babylon. And in Babylon, it says in Jeremiah 29, they were to care about the welfare of their city. They were supposed to care about their people and about their city, even though they didn't agree with everything they said. And so I wanna to recommend to you having like a surgical precision, we would call it discernment, where when you watch a movie, you think about what the movie's saying, right? You don't just turn your brain off, but you think about the message and you say, what is true in this quote unquote Babylonian movie because all people are made in the image of God and all people make art and stories that reflect the deepest longings of every human soul? And then what are actual false gospels and false hopes in this movie? And there are going to be good things and bad things in, in every movie and in every song you listen to. Now, just to be clear, there's some movies you should never, ever watch, right? We're, we're living in a pornified culture. It's never okay. Cut that out, right? There are certain categories that you just wouldn't touch. But there's a lot of stuff in the middle that you're like, hey, this is It's not completely true, but I can listen to it. I can talk to my neighbor now. I can have a conversation about what's true and what's not true, and we can interact. And we can hopefully lead people towards how he says being sound in the faith. Cutting out what's untrue, receiving what is good, having a conversation about it. So this category we often call, there's a couple of words for this. One is Christian worldview. You need to grow in your understanding of a Christian worldview. So as you hear a non-Christian worldview from a song, or from a movie, or in a book that you're reading. You can understand that. You can hear what they're saying. You can say, okay, I agree with this part, but I disagree with that part. And you can have a conversation with the piece of media or with your neighbor as y'all are watching it or listening to it together. Um, so grow in your understanding of Christian worldview. There's a book here that I would recommend. Again, it's a, this is a nice small one. Sorry, I've been recommending a lot of books today. Uh, this is Christian Worldview, A Student's Guide by Philip Ryken. It's really good, really simple really basic. I think it would be helpful to you. There's another one that we've given to a lot of college students called How to Stay Christian in College. It's also very simple, very easy to understand. So it's for everybody, not just people that are going to college. Um, But it's basically how to understand and discern between the false things you're being taught and the true things in scripture. Uh, And then finally, this one's a little more complicated, but it's my favorite actually out of these three. It's called The Reason for God, Belief in an Age of Skepticism by Tim Keller. Uh, And this is sometimes called apologetics. That's giving a reason for our faith, right? So it's being able to distinguish between here are the things that my culture is saying all the time, and then here's what Jesus is saying, and and how to have a conversation between those two worlds and those two universes. So I recommend that to you, growing in that area. Final thing I would recommend is a website. Uh, A friend of mine uh, runs a website called um, ransomfellowship.org. And there's just tons of movie reviews and book reviews and music reviews where he tries to practice this Christian discernment, where he says, this is true and good and beautiful in this piece of art. And then this diverts from the gospel and having a conversation where you can discern what's true and what's not. So it's ransomfellowship.org and they do a really good job there helping you to work that out with media. Okay, last point here, false gospels are artificial, artificial. Um, It's from the word artifice, right? Like you can put a fake front on something. Um, And so false gospels, these fake gospels can draw us in because they might really be talking about and highlighting the problem you and I struggle with, right? So like when you're sinning, it's nice to just be straightforward and say, hey, stop sinning, right? Right? But that's not always enough. You have to get back down to the root. Like what's the heart issue underneath? What's driving you toward that sin? There's, there's a false gospel you're believing. You're thinking, this pleasure can save me. And so you keep running towards this pleasure. You keep going to the bottle, even though it's shipwrecking your life, right? So it's not just a thing you need to stop on the outside, the artifice of it, but there's a heart issue. There's a root issue. Jesus talks about this again and again. We've got to attack the roots. We need to have a new heart. So let's look at verse 14 where he talks about this. In verse 14, um, he's talking about those who need to be rebuked. And he says, they should not be devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. So there was a habit for them to take the Old Testament and read the true parts and then add to it and make up Jewish myths. And so they would make up these stories about the Jewish heroes, and they would kind of turn them into superheroes that would draw our attention away from God and his saving work and would amplify and puff up man and his flesh, right? So like when you watch an action hero movie and you're like, that's a great action hero, and I want to be an action hero too, right? Like that puffs up your flesh. I could do that. I could jump off that building and save those people, right? And that kind of makes you feel more awesome and more strong. Whereas the Bible is like, yeah, people keep messing up and they need God to save them, right? It's a different kind of story where God is the hero, where Jesus is the action hero and we need him to rescue us. And so they were following these Jewish myths where they were puffing up man and it says the commandments of people who turn away from the truth. And then he gets into some really weird language here that only makes sense in context of other things that Jesus has said and other New Testament passages. Verse 15 says this, to the pure all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are just detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. So that first phrase there in verse 15 is a little tricky. To the pure, all things are pure. So on a first reading, you could hear that and think what he's saying is, oh, well then, Maybe porn's okay, or maybe this sin is fine, because if I'm pure in heart, I can do anything. It doesn't matter, right? That's not what he's saying. That is not what he means, because later on, he gives us the category of, yeah, there are some behaviors that are impure and detestable, and we should not do. So clearly, Paul doesn't think it in that sense. It's not some kind of Gnostic magic trick that he's playing here. What he's saying is to the pure, all things are pure, meaning the foods and the ceremonial dress and the ceremonial Jewish rituals from the Old Testament. And so the way we can understand that is by looking over to Mark 7, you don't have to turn there, but I'm just gonna read some from Mark chapter 7. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus and his followers are not washing their hands and doing the rituals of the Jewish tradition. And they're like, why do you do this? And Jesus said, well, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? Y'all are hypocrites. Hypocrite is a mask wearer. You're just worrying about the artifice. You're just worrying about the outside of things. He says, Isaiah talked about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandments of God and hold to the traditions of men. Once again, Jesus is saying, you're worried about the outside. You're worried about the artifice, but not the heart. This is a religious problem. This is an externalization problem. This is a problem of us saying, we're going to focus on artificial external things and not actually be transformed from the inside out. And so what is promised in the new covenant in Hebrews chapter eight is not that God's going to change the law, but that he's going to put it inside us. It says in Hebrews eight, he's going to write the law on our hearts. And he's going to do that through the mechanism of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, taking our sin and death upon himself and giving us his resurrection life, giving us his perfect righteousness. So that's now flowing from within us. So Jesus says it this way, continuing in Mark 7. Don't you see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach. I guess the stomach is here, right? Or here, do we have any medical people? I don't know, somewhere down here. So he says, the things that go into your mouth don't go into your heart, but they actually go into your stomach and then is expelled. So see, Jesus talks about toilets as well. And it says, thus he declared all foods clean. So this transition from the Old Testament where they had all these symbols that told the story of God's holiness and our need of a sacrifice, those have now been set aside in Jesus. Hebrews is real clear about that. Now we don't need to tell those stories in the same way, but the message is still true. We just now have the ultimate reality in Jesus himself. Hebrews talks about it as the difference between shadows and substance. So all of those messages were true. We're just no longer bound by those food laws and those rituals anymore. Now we have this fullness in Christ himself. And so Mark says here, that's when Jesus declared all foods clean. Jesus goes on and says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For it's from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Okay, I hope you noticed something. His list was really long, so none of us got to escape, right? Like if it's a short list, you can be like, oh, I didn't murder anyone last week. I am holy, right? But here he has a long list, and he's like, there's something here for everybody. And that sin comes from within your heart. It's not the food you eat that make you sin, right? Here's a a way that this manifests itself. Here's a non-Christian response to sin. When you sin, you say, it's that thing over there that made me do it. The Christian response to sin is, I'm sinful and I did the wrong thing and I need Jesus to save me. So 1 John 1 says there, there are two responses to the world of sin. One is to lie about it, right? Wasn't really me, it was that thing over there. It was that food I ate, it was bad pizza, Right? The other is to admit it, to be honest. Yeah, I sinned, to confess, to admit before God, I need a savior. That's my only hope, a savior. God provides it in Jesus. So we need to be careful because fake gospels, false gospels focus on the artifice, on the outside. So this is like saying, hey, your fruit tree, your spiritual life is not producing fruit. So let's go buy some plastic fruit and glue it onto you. That's what artificial religion does. I found this really weird, creepy video online. I was Googling like fake fruit. You know, I was looking for a picture of fake fruit. I found a video of a guy who eats fake fruit on the video. It's like styrofoam painted fruit and he's eating it. He's crunching it and it's making that styrofoam noise. You know that noise? Like that you should never hear because it's so horrible. It's like, you know, it's just him eating styrofoam fruit. It's so horrible. Don't look it up. It's disgusting. But it's a reality that points to this it's this thing we live with, right? Another another image is the the Radiohead song. It's this like it's this lament, it's this kind of broken heart, sad song called "Fake Plastic Trees." I don't know if you've heard it. A million people have redone it. It's one of Radiohead's earlier songs, but it's just a lament over like the fakeness of our world. You know, we just get tired of stuff being artificial. We want something real. There have been studies now that show that in buildings that have real wood inside the building, it lowers people's heart rate. It increases their productivity. It reduces their anxiety. It's like we're starting to realize biologically we're sick of fakeness, right? <laughs> like we just, we can't stand any more styrofoam. Well, that's true in the spiritual life as well. That's true in our spiritual life. We need something deeper, deeper than just artificial religion that's kind of pointing out a few changes we can make. Do we want to change? Yes, we want to change, but it's got to start with the heart. So it starts with confession. So 1 John 1 again, it starts with you admitting that sin is your real problem. It's not just this one external behavior, but it's a deep down desire to save yourself and avoid God down in your heart. That's the ultimate issue. And John says, when you confess that, he is faithful and just to forgive you, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. It's an ongoing work. It's not a snap your fingers and you're totally, you know, never make a mistake again. It's ongoing work of cleansing. And then James talks about that. You do that in community. So I want to I invite you to make that confrontation with your own sin and trust yourself to Jesus to save you. That's what 1 John talks about. And then I also want to invite you to community. James 5 says, keep that going. Like, keep talking to other people about it. Keep being real. It's an ongoing process. He says, confess your sins one to another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. That's when we're talking about inviting you into joining a group, a small group, where you look at the scriptures, you pray for each other, you care for each other. That's what that's about. Celebrate recovery, coming together, admitting, man, I've got some issues, confessing them, praying for one another. That's the ongoing work, right? So don't don't settle for just rearranging the deck chairs, right? Don't settle for just gluing plastic fruit, looking religious on the outside, but not doing the hard work of deep heart change. That's what we're called on is to do that ongoing work of going deeper and working on the change from from the inside out, having God transform our hearts as Jesus talks about. Okay, we'll wrap up here. We've got to reject false gospels, reject what is fake, reject what is not real, and opt instead for Jesus. So we've talked a lot about the negative this week. There's a lot of uh, negative, don't do this, stop this, silence this in our passage. But I wanna come back to the major theme of sound, healthy teaching, right? We talked about plumbing, has two, two basic roles. Plumbing is to uh, reject the sewage, but plumbing is also to bring in fresh water. When we go and work in third world countries, um, those are two things we often work on, right? When people are in dire poverty, They need uh, often latrines and bathrooms to get rid of the sewage, right? They also often need fresh water to come in and give life. And that image comes up again and again in the scriptures. There's this beautiful prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 47, where Ezekiel is given a vision of the future temple that hasn't been built yet. The temple in Old Testament terms is where God meets humanity. And in this vision of the temple, Ezekiel sees water flowing from the temple says, from under the threshold of the temple, water is streaming out. And he says that water is growing and growing and getting deeper and deeper. And everywhere that that water flows, trees are growing and new life is uh, springing up. And what was dead before is coming back to life. There's this transformation. It's a beautiful image. Go back and read Ezekiel 47 yourself. You'll see this, this fresh water bringing New life. That's the hope that we have in Jesus. The New Testament tells us that Jesus is that temple. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the place where we meet God. Jesus is the place where the fresh water flows out and brings new life and transforms everything. And that's fulfilled. This, this image is picked back up in Revelation 22, the last chapter of our Bible. It says, Yeah, that new life, that new water is flowing from within the temple. And Jesus is at the center of it, where heaven meets earth. Do you know Jesus? We've talked a lot about rejecting false gospels. The question is, are you, are you coming to Jesus? Are you seeing that he is the embodiment of the true gospel? So that Titus, in this letter, can say, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of the washing of new birth. He washed us by giving us new life, the ongoing renewal then of his Holy Spirit. We have to come to Jesus. Let me pray for us and then we'll respond and worship. God, thank you for the new life that you give us in Christ. And we pray that you continue to draw us to yourself. Help us to see the fresh water that you've invited us to. Help us to come to you. We don't have anything of our own. We need you. We need what you have to offer. We thank you for giving us life. We thank you for renewing us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.